If you want to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, as we close out the year together, I want to open up what I think is one of the most incredible passages of Scripture with us. My name is Jeremy, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, the aforementioned guru, of which I am not. Um, yeah, open up with me Isaiah chapter 9, if you have a Bible in front of you. What is absolutely incredible as we unpack this passage is that this piece of writing is 2,700 years old. Just stop for a moment and consider how many other pieces of writing survive to this day, 2,700 years old, nearly three millennia, and what's more, makes such an incredible claim that God has come to dwell with his people. Such momentous words contained within this passage, which continue to be looked upon continue to be drawn upon, as we're doing on this evening, to understand the hope that has come to shape our lives. I feel almost like a kind of sense of which you're on a holy ground as you open up the scroll that has shaped civilization for nearly three millennia and consider this incredible story of hope. And what I want to do as we look at it this evening is present to you the story of hope that Isaiah is giving us But more than that, I want to suggest that this should make us people who are shaped by hope. That this story does not remain just um, words on a page, but instead becomes the narrative of our lives. So as a result, if you believe this to be true, which I do, then this should reshape how you live. It should reshape your inner life, who you are. At the core of your being, should shape, create joy, should create a sense of endurance, and more than that, even, it should create an action in us. It should create, make us people who are hungry to proclaim this hope in the world. So let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 8. I want to read to you from just before, as we'll see, the context for this passage even makes it even stronger that this is an announcement of hope. So Isaiah chapter 8. Verse 21, it's speaking about the people of Judah here, part of the people of Israel, and they have rebelled against God, and it speaks about the judgment that is coming upon them and their reaction to God, and then it speaks hope. It says, they will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is a new narrative. This is, when you hear these words, some of you have heard them many times, they almost roll over us. We have to step back and see the, the gravity, the extent of wit to which this story is world-changing. What we have is Isaiah writing 700 years before Jesus' incarnation, and we all know it's an announcement of his birth, but it might not all make sense to you. What you need to understand is this passage is describing a kind of now and a not yet, saying writing from his vantage point, it's a little bit like how you might go on a, um, a long walk and you would kind of see a mountain range before you, and from far away, those mountains look really close. But when you get to them, you realize there's some distance between the mountains. And the sense to which Isaiah is describing both Christ's incarnation, Christ's coming, and his coming again, his return to establish his kingdom in all its fullness. And we have a passage which almost treats them as one event, almost describes Christ's coming. It describes a sense of overwhelming um, peace and joy that I think really is only fully felt at Christ's return. And in this announcement of hope, we have Isaiah marveling at this great proclamation, this great hope that has dawned on a people who are in anguish and gloom. What kind of people would we be if we really believed this was true? What kind of people would we be if we really believed this would be true? And I would argue, as I've, as I've dwelt on this passage, my overwhelming sense is, it's, our, the Lord desires not just that we read these words and we believe them and they kind of provide comfort to us, but in a sense that we would become people of hope. That we would be shaped by this narrative. That we, we would believe them so much that it would be the source of deepest joy in our lives. That it would, this, this story of hope, this conviction that Christ has come, that he's reigning now, the government is on his shoulders, and that he will return one day to establish his rule and reign on the earth fully, is to be the source of greatest joy. It's to be the way that we persevere through all the hardships and darkness of this world, and that we become a people who are so gripped by this story that we cannot help but want to share this message of hope with the world. We, we are called to be a people of hope. And what's really fascinating as you dig into this passage is that's exactly what Isaiah is actually called to do in, in the run-up to this passage. You, right, in chapter 8, we read a little bit of it, but basically Isaiah is speaking to his kind of inner circle, a faithful remnant in a nation that is experiencing the judgment of God. 
This is the, nation, the people of Judah. And uh, Israel, the kind of northern kingdom, has already experienced the judgment of God as Assyria has come and conquered the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. They've already experienced darkness in the sense of judgment has come upon them, that God is using a people to bring around destruction in response to their rebellion to him. So Israel's already experienced this judgment, and Ju- that judgment is coming on Judah. And, they, and, they, and as a result, they will experience great anguish and gloom. They will speak contemptuously. There's a, there's a, it's describing the rebellion of the people of God, the, or, the, or the supposed people of God. The people who are meant to be the people of God, but they're rebelling against him. They're contemptuous towards him. They're raging against him. And so as a result, they are separated. They are sent into exile. And there will be anguish and gloom, a deep darkness, a hopelessness. But to this faithful remnant, God is speaking specifically to Isaiah and his disciples, it it uses that language, saying, actually, you will continue to be people of hope even while the people around you are hopeless. You would have seen it before the passage that I read um, in verse 12. He says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. He's saying, don't Don't fear like the people around you. You are a faithful remnant who will remain trusting in the living God whilst all around you are are in rebellion and, as a result, experiencing the anguish of separation from the living God. Later on, Isaiah is speaking himself, and he says, I will wait for the Lord who who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. So the context of this passage is Isaiah and his group are hearing this call to be a people of hope in the midst of a hopeless world. And actually, as I read that, I just think that's exactly where we find ourselves as Christians. That this story of hope, this great narrative of hope that Isaiah is proclaiming to us is intended to make us a people of hope in a hopeless world. Isn't that the context we find ourselves in? Isn't, don't we see the hopelessness around us I mean, you see it in the present cultural moment in Britain today. We see a deep sense of economic turmoil, a cost of living crisis, uh, post-Brexit, a sense of deep um, political turmoil, of polarization, of division, of lives ruined by, um, well, all sorts of different social phenomenons consumed by a kind of digital world of men living in isolation. We could go on and talk about the various different social crises and challenges that our nation experiences, but put those all together, that litany, that list over the last few years, and I think many of us would describe the current cultural climate as one of hopelessness. I think go further, actually, and you see the hopelessness would even go back to the kind of inherent or the dominating secular worldview of our culture. You see, from a secular perspective, you are just a random uh, set of clump of cells, that you aren't coming from anywhere and you aren't going anywhere. Your life has no overarching meta-narrative, no sense of purpose except one that you might find and grasp for yourself. That the inherent secular worldview that's dominant in our culture, and some of you are here would not describe yourselves as Christians, actually does not give you any kind of overarching hope for your life. It says you're just a random clump of cells. And any suffering you experience, any misfortune is just random. And so there's no sense of hope in the dominating worldview of our culture. 
We see hopelessness in our cultural moment. We see hopelessness in, our con- in the worldview, prevailing worldview. And in the midst of that hopelessness, we as Christians are living according to a different narrative. That this story that Isaiah is giving us is not just a story, but is the story of our lives. And so we should look different. In fact, I'd go even further and say we are intended to be a sign of hope in our culture. It's amazing. In, in verse 18, in chapter 8, uh, Isaiah says this, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents, which kind of means warning, um, are signs and warnings in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. He's saying in the midst of this culture, we, are, we the, the kind of faithful remnant, are intended to be a sign of the judgment that's coming on the people. And I would flip that around and say we as Christians are intended to be a sign of this story of hope. Imagine yourself as a, big, a large billboard. And you think that is, your life is intended to tell a story, intended to say to the people around you, there is hope. In a hopeless world, there is hope. Does it do that? Do people around you, can they see a hope, a new trajectory, a different story in your life such that they say, I want what you have? Isn't this what Peter is getting at in 1 Peter 3 when he says, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have? Saying there are going to be some who would look at your life and say, what is this hope that you're living according to? Why? Why do you have such a different hope? He says, But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make an offense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. I think that presupposes that some are looking at your life saying, why are you different? You seem to have a a different perspective on life that reshapes you, that gives you a sense of of hope, almost positivity, you might say. I don't think this is just personality. Saying you've got a different view of the world. Why? Be prepared to give a reason for that. Would people look at your life and say you're different? Because my great concern as I read this and hear the call to be a people of hope is that we as Christians look just the same as everybody else. That our lives are shaped by the same sense of despair, same everyday fears as the people around us. That's a problem. I think we see this on a number of different levels. One of the reasons actually is, I think the good reason, is we as Christians, if if you've come to follow Christ, you know that the world is not about you. Before you're a follower of Christ, you can kind of say, look, I'm just going to get on with my thing and do my thing and make my way in the world. And you're kind of focused on your own circumstances. But as you choose to follow Christ, he gives you a new heart for the world. And you experience a compassion, a sense of genuine sense of considering the welfare of others. And so for the first time ever, you're actually starting to think about other people. And and so that sense of uh, you're aware of the problems of the world. That's a good thing. But it can't let us, we can't be destroyed by that, that the, the, the negative circumstance around us. We are called to, to see the reality of the world, but to see it with eyes of hope. Because we believe in a God of hope. That's how he's described in Romans 5. That's one, re, that's one danger. I think also, just the mood music of modern Christianity is actually really pessimistic. We sermons and, and, and news articles about the decline of Christianity. Now we're no longer a Christian nation. And, you know, headline after headline. And again and again, Christians are feeling a deep sense of division, alienation in the culture, which creates a kind of sense of pessimism and a lack of hope. And I don't want to deny reality. There's no, I absolutely look at all the same facts of the matter, but I'd say we're not called to be, dis, to be walking in fear or despair. Think about the early church. Surely they were facing 
worse scenario, the full might of the Roman establishment, the Jewish leaders, etc., etc., opposed to their very existence, wanting to, to stamp out this fledgling movement, and yet the early church is full of hope, full of a zeal to proclaim, the, to proclaim Christ to a world that is in deep antipathy towards them. Because, why? Because they have a conviction the Lord is going to work and use them and to see his name go out and to see his kingdom in, increasing, to see the government of Christ increasing. And so we're not called to walk in fear. We're called to walk in hope. So what does it look like to be people of hope? Well, I want to suggest it means three things. I want to suggest it's people of joy. I say it changes you on the inside. It should give you a, a, a joy that is unshaped by your circumstances. Well, second of all, I want to show you that it gives you a, a perseverance, a willingness to endure through suffering. And then thirdly, this sense of action, this sense of desiring to proclaim this hope. So that's all joy. I would argue joy is one of the defining hallmarks of one who has come to believe in this story of hope. Both the joy that awaits us and a joy to be experienced now. You see this sense of joy in Isaiah's proclamation. You hear it in verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. He's saying, accompanying the proclamation of this Messiah, this king, this new, this one who, whose the government will be on his shoulders, is joy. Saying the people rejoice. I think it's describing, actually, ultimately, the joy that will accompany those who, who look on Christ as he returns and are celebrating his great and glorious victory as like a harvest. I think if you worked weeks on, on back-breaking labor and you kind of have this great harvest before you, there's a sense of overwhel being overwhelmed by the harvest, being celebrating the, the, the good kind of... Uh, bountiful harvest in front of you. There's a sense of gratitude in those verses. Or think about the way that we are told in Revelation that speaks of being united with Christ again when he comes back to establish his kingdom on this earth. It speaks of a, a wedding supper, a banquet. When I, it's my little boy is four years old, and since he's about two, two and a half, we've, we've been reading this book and talking about heaven. And the way, the picture that we use to talk about heaven in our household is this great banquet. So for, you know, at least a year or so, Caleb's just been talking about experiencing that banquet with Christ. That sense of, he talks about the different cakes he's going to have, and maybe we, we give a bit of dramatic license there. But my point is, even to his little mind, that the idea of this banquet is, it says, heaven is full of joy. It's like undiluted joy, the sense to which we will experience a fallen world to this day. We will experience glimpses and moments and just grasp for a kind of almost a, 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 brief, a brief second that this sense of joy, and it will be undiluted, pure in a sense, that when we see Christ face to face. You'll have heard in Revelation 22, it speaks of seeing Christ face to face. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, and the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Have you ever wondered what it will be to stare into the eyes of Christ? 
the one who knows you better than you know yourself, who was willing to go for the cross for you. I can see in some of your faces as you contemplate that idea. It's, it's incredible. The one we only see darkly and dimly, so to speak, in this life. We will see him face to face and we will bask in his glory, the glory of the sun, that we will need no light or sun. It's incredible. That joy that awaits us is intended to shape our present experience now. We as Christians are instructed to keep watch, is how one part, one, what Jesus describes it at one point in the New Testament. He's saying, keep one eye on the future joy that awaits. Keep one eye on the reality of that hope to come. And that should bleed into, that should create present joy now. As we experience weariness and exhaustion in this life, we long for the day when we will find real, true, lasting rest for our souls for eternity. As we experience frustrations with the sin within and, our, and the flesh, our bodies, we one day look forward to the idea that we have new creation bodies. New bodies and new hearts, no more struggling with sin. As we experience a fallen world and we experience people being mean to us or hurting us or a, a lack of love or a sense of loneliness in this life, we long for the day when we will experience the full love of Christ and the full answer to our deepest longings. The future joy should shape our present joy now. Why? Why does it fail to move us? Is it because we're distracted from this great story by the busyness of our lives? Distracted by pursuing other, perhaps lesser hopes, lesser joys? Trying to curate the circumstances of our lives with the right job and the right relationship and the right housing situation and all good things, all gifts from God, but perhaps we'll recognize, we need to recognize that at some level you can optimize your life and you'll still experience the fallenness of this world. You'll experience a sense of dissatisfaction through just those different circumstances. Or have we just forgotten the nowness of this passage? I spoke at the beginning that this is a, a now and a not yet and we look at the not yet and say there is joy to come, but there's also joy now. Why? Because Christ's government has been established now. When Isaiah makes this great proclamation of the, of, of the coming birth of a child, it says the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's saying his government had been established. And all those of us who follow Christ, who recognize Christ as Lord, are living under his government. And as we live under his government, that is source for an abiding and unshakable joy that is, that is detached from our circumstances. As we live under the everlasting Father, we experience the great comfort of being loved by our perfect Father of experiencing a father who pursues us despite the fact that we are constantly rebellious, that we constantly are drawn after other things. We experience the, the father running out and embracing us to himself again and again and again. I, as I was preparing this, I was reminded of those incredible words in, in John chapter 6 where Jesus said, He who comes to me I will never cast out. Just think about that for a moment. He who comes to me, I will never cast out. Some of you feel broken 
by your sin, broken by the experience of trying to do life and just think, I'm just at the end of myself. And Christ says, come to me. I will not cast you out. He's drawn towards you in your sin as a doctor is drawn towards a patient in his sickness. What an incredible God we serve. Well, think of what it means to be drawn into the Prince of Peace, the one who, who knows the reality of our hearts, how we, it is natural to fear different parts of the future, to worry about what is round the corner, and says, no, come to me and experience peace for your souls. Come and recognize that I am the one who is sovereignly in control of the world, and I am good, and I can be trusted. And it is that sovereign control and that goodness that together is the great antidote to the anxieties that bubble up within our hearts. The light has entered into the world and we who've experienced that light shining on our lives have found a joy that is unshakable by the circumstances of our lives. We cannot neglect this joy because a joyless Christian is of very little benefit to the world. It is our joy that actually should cause others around us to go, what is it that you have that I wish I had? Joyless Christians do not present a very good sign or billboard to the Christ who has come into our lives. It doesn't mean we won't experience hardship or trials, but that we have a joy that is almost not beyond the circumstances of this world. And do you know what? The Christian life is so much easier when, you, when you're experiencing joy of the Lord. I'm not talking about just like when you're happy. I'm saying when you experience this contentment, this peace, this sense of the love of the Father, when you experience what I would call communion, deep sense of communion, when you are aware and living with, the, with an awareness of the presence of God in your life, the goodness of God, when your face is turned towards him and when you're not ignoring him, the Christian life, trying to be obedient to him, is so much easier Sometimes you're kind of beating your body and actually what you need to do is pursue communion and remember who you have. Remember the Father that you have. Remember the the peace that Christ gives. Draw towards him, reshape your heart and then you can live the Christian life. It's so much easier that way around rather than trying to beat your body into submission. So we live in the now and the not yet, looking forward to the joy to come and experiencing the joy of the government of Christ now. But this is not a naive joy. This is not a joy that is unshaped by the darkness of our lives. The second thing that should be true about us if we really believe this hope is that we have an ability to persevere through the darkness. Just as we, this passage speaks of a total peace to come, it also speaks of the reality of darkness now. It says, those who live with this hope are able to persevere through that darkness because they know a day is coming when there will be no darkness and only light. This passage speaks both of a future peace and takes account of a present darkness. You see the future peace. It talks about the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. He goes on, and this, oh, this verse is just so beautiful. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. He's saying every boot of the warrior, every weapon will be burnt. 
It's foreseeing a time when there is no conflict, no war, no sinful destruction of man against man. This is speaking of that great reality that when Christ returns, there will be no more sin. No more women's refuges for abused women. No more homeless shelters for people who are oppressed in society. No more prisons. No more landmines. No more sex offenders registers. Just imagine a world unmarred by the brutal and sometimes horrendous reality of human sin. A day when there's no more mourning, no more crying, no more tears, and no more death, no more hospices, no more hospitals, because death has come to an end. Isn't that the answer to our deepest longings? And yet, just as we look forward to a day of peace, there is also a recognition that today is not that day. It speaks of those who've walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who've dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. John 1 talks about the idea that a light shines in the darkness. And that is the now and the not yet of the Christian life. As we talk about the light, as we talk about the fact that the light has dawned and come into our lives, we cannot ignore the reality that there is still darkness. Some of us feel that very acutely at Christmas because... Everyone else is kind of joy and twee fantasies and Father Christmas and all that kind of jazz. Don't get me started on him. Um, <laughs> Caleb knows that I really, that like in our family, he's like, we were out in a restaurant like two weeks ago and he's like, oh, there's a Father Christmas over there. Daddy, don't look at that because he knows that I'm like, Christmas is not about Father Christmas. Christmas is about Jesus. I'm <laughs> another story, another day. But my point is, some of us at Christmas time, we, we, there's a kind of sense, this aura of you should be joyful, you should be happy, and that's acutely difficult if we're not. But I think the Christian story is, is very different to that. It says there is light, it says there is joy, but there's also a reality of darkness. And it doesn't, doesn't, take a, doesn't ignore that reality. But it is because the light is coming, because we know that all darkness in this world is in some sense temporary, the darkness is on the way out, so to speak, the, day, the darkness's days are numbered that we can endure through suffering to this day. All the suffering we experience in this life, brutal as it will feel at times, is only temporary as we look to a future when there is just light and no more darkness. That's why Paul, when he speaks in 2 Corinthians, speaks about his suffering as light and momentary affliction. And if you read the description that Paul gives of suffering, he talks about being beaten, being rejected by his community. He talks about even despairing of life itself. He's almost brought to kind of, one, one, he certainly wants to be with Jesus. He said, it would be better if I was apart with Jesus. So he is brought to the end of himself, and yet he describes it as light and momentary affliction. How is he able to do that? Except from taking the long view, from stepping back and saying, the suffering that I experience now is, is but a drop in the ocean to the future that awaits to the eternal the weight of eternal glory to come it's just a drop that's why christians can respond in peace to their aggressors can love their enemies because they know this is not the end of the story they do not need to bring retribution because there is one who will bring a day of reckoning and judgment they are those who can who can walk with a patience through suffering who can endure through suffering because they say this is not the end, that they live under a sovereign God who's working out his purposes in that suffering, and one day the darkness will be gone and there will only be light. So just for some of you who are walking through suffering, you need to hear, do not give up. 
do not give up. Endurance is the Christian response, even when it feels hard, because we say the light has come. The light is shining in our lives, and there's a day when the light will dawn fully and there will be no darkness. Finally then, we've talked about joy. We've talked about perseverance. The final thing this story of hope should do in us, it should make us passionate to proclaim hope in the world. Isn't this exactly what Isaiah's doing? He's speaking to his faithful disciples, saying, do not fear, do not give in to the anguish and gloom around you, because this is the hope. He's proclaiming hope. And we too are called that once this story has taken root in our lives, the almost organic overflow of being captured by a better story is wanting the other people around us, our friends, our family, our colleagues, to hear this great story of hope. Just as we treasure the light that has dawned in our lives, we say, how could you live in anguish and gloom? Deep darkness, I want you to experience this great light that has dawned in my life. That isn't just kind of a, a good news for me, but the light has dawned. Come to the light. Don't stay in anguish and gloom. It's implicit in this story in a couple of ways, actually, that we'll share it. The first is this concept of light. It's about the light dawning. But we know that we are not just passive recipients of light, the New Testament goes on, Jesus goes on in, in Matthew's gospel to speak of those who are the church have become the light. So who is the light of the world? We say, it's, well, it's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the light of the world, yes, but it's also you. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Saying those who receive the light are not like a lead box where the light goes in and doesn't come out. Instead, they are like a lamp, like a kind of stained glass window. The light shines through them, and so shines into others' lives. You are the light. Just as you've received this light, you are to shine that light into others' lives. That's the first thing. The second thing you can see is the government is increasing. In, at the end of um, this passage in Isaiah, he says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. What does he mean by increase? He says that the, the baby has been born... We see the baby grow up to maturity. We see Christ vindicated, first on the cross, then on the re resurrection. We see that he is in charge, that he is governing. He ascends to the right hand of the Father, and his government increases. The small fledgling band of disciples. And then it spreads out from there. And over the last 2,000 years, that small mustard seed, that plant, this one of the, small, the smallest plant in the garden, has grown and grown. So that they're almost followers of Christ in almost every nation. Yes, the story of Western decline of the UK is, is one story, but take a more global view, and we know, we can see the story of constant expansion of the government of Christ expanding, saying we are to be that means of expansion. This is, do we remember this, this great narrative? The book of Habakkuk describes the sense to which 
the, the, the Christ's um, faith covers the earth like waters cover the sea. I don't know if you've ever um, looked out on the ocean and you've seen just the vastness of the ocean. It's saying there are days coming when the disciples will be like that vastness of the ocean. That is, that is the trajectory of, for the people of God. That Christ's government is increasing and we are intended to be that light. But I think we, do, we often don't do that. We often ignore this. I think a, this passage actually speaks to a couple of reasons why that is. Well, that speaks to a couple of issues there. One is, we've forgotten the anguish and gloom of what it is to be without Christ. See, the, the contrast in this passage is of those who walk in a deep darkness versus those who have come to experience the light. Saying, without God, they are like thrashing about, hopeless alone in the world, angry at a God they don't even believe in. It's so easy when you look out on a world and you see a great privilege, great um, opportunities and all sorts of things in a city like London to forget that those around us are walking in anguish and gloom who aren't without the great hope, the great narrative that has come into our lives. Think about what darkness feels like. None of you experience darkness while you're in London. There's always light around you. But you go out into the middle of a field in a rural area, and suddenly you know what darkness feels like. And do you know what? It doesn't feel that nice. A dark night where there's no stars. In the middle of a field, you feel pretty cold. No life in darkness. No, nothing grows in darkness. You need light to grow. It feels pretty dangerous. What is, I can't see anything. I'm pretty unsafe at this moment. Darkness is not a nice place to be in. It speaks of deep darkness, of gloom. Saying without Christ, you're hopeless. You're without hope. An unceasing peacelessness. A sense of frustration and anger with oneself that you cannot resolve. No external purpose, no God who loves you, but a thrashing about, a searching for a purpose and a meaning that does not come without the God who gives you purpose. I'm sure many who don't know Christ wouldn't describe it that way. But this passage suggests that there is an anguish and a gloom. Oh, we've forgotten that. And yet contrast that to what we've experienced. The light of Christ dawning in our lives. The warmth, the hope, the comfort, the love, the sense of purpose. Even the power of Christ's work in our lives and contrast the light to the darkness, and we think, how could we not? How could we not tell the world about the light that has dawned into our lives? This also speaks to another area, I think, behind our lack of desire to be the light, and that is despair. When, I, when, we, when it speaks of hope in this passage, it's not just the hope of Christ's return. I think there's also a sense of hope at God's work in the world. A deep confidence in God's power and his work. And what I want to suggest to you is that one of the reasons we do not go out, one of the reasons we don't embrace that role to be lights is because we don't really think God's at work in the world. And that's actually very different to the people of God throughout the ages. I think about the book of Acts, that sense of hope that they have, the sense that God is at work in the world and we trust him for that. 
I think about Acts chapter 4, where the disciples have just experienced a rebuke from the Sanhedrin and just been told, basically, don't, don't talk about him. But what do they do? They go and pray for the boldness to keep on talking. Why? Because they have a confidence in the sovereign God who is able to work out his purposes despite the opposition they're facing. They said they, they lift their voices, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They start, their prayer starts with a conviction that you're in charge, God. Even though we're experiencing this opposition, you're in charge, you're able to work. And then they go on. They say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Saying, give us boldness, God. Give us courage. Give us confidence because you are able to work your signs and wonders and your work that despite the opposition, your word will go out. It is that confidence, that sense of hope that says, I hope in the power and strength of the Lord that propels us out into the world. I think of all the men and women who've gone before us who've laid down their lives in the proclamation of Christ have been convinced in the power of God That is what will drive someone across the seas to a different nation, willingness to go and lay down their life for Christ because they say, I worship a God who is able and powerful to move in the world. It is our lack of confidence in God that that draws us back. George Whitfield spoke of this. He's a great, uh, great minister. It's not actually George Whitfield, another guy, William Warburton. He said this, the scriptures are so far from encouraging us to plead for a diminution, a lowering, a smalling, a reduction of divine influence in these last days of the gospel, that on the contrary, we are encouraged to expect, hope, and long, and pray for larger and more extensive showers of divine influence than any former age has ever experienced. For are we not therein taught to pray, this is a quote from Ephesians, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God and to wait for a glorious epoch, this is a quote from Habakkuk, when the earth should be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Saying, aren't we to long for a work of God in the world that is bigger because that is what we should expect As Paul prays that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. A God who can do much more than we could ask or imagine. Or envisages a day when the world is covered by believers such as the waters cover the seas. Do we have confidence in the living God? Do we have hope in a God who is able to move in the world? That is the biblical expectation. That is the the pattern of the brothers and sisters who've gone before us. The sun is reigning. Christ is reigning. The government is on his shoulders. He is able to achieve his purposes. How big is your God? He's really big. (laughs) That doesn't do him justice. He's He's really big. He's able to achieve his purposes. Why do we doubt him? Why do we make him small? Why do we attempt to achieve so little? I think I'm right in saying this is George Whitfield now. He says, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Not attempt great things in our own strength, but expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. That is the call of the people of God. Yes, we'll experience rejection. Yes, people will reject Christ and will brush the the dust of our feet. 
Yes, the whole of society was unlikely to follow Christ. His is a narrow way. It's not the, the broad way, it's the narrow way. The unpopular option in one sense. And yet, Christ tells us the fields are ripe for the harvest. So hope in the Lord and express your hope. Express your confidence that God is able to work in the world by taking an opportunity to speak about him. By taking a fumbling moment to kind of get the words all wrong and yet we believe in a God who's able to work through our weakness. That is the great power found in the living God. The Lord wants confident disciples, not confident in ourselves, but confident in the majesty and the power and the willingness of God to work in the world. Do we have that, brothers and sisters? So step back, look at this great story of hope. See the great vision that Isaiah has nearly three millennia ago. A day is coming when a child will be born. We say we've seen that. He's been vindicated. The government will be on his shoulders. That we experience that government now. We experience the joy of that. And yet we wait for the day when we will see his kingdom come in all its fullness across the earth. That we will experience full joy, full peace. We look forward to that day. We anticipate that day. And now we get on with the work of reclaiming that hope to the world. That is our calling I'm going to pray in a moment. Maybe the Lord is putting his finger on things here. Maybe some of you say, I'm not experiencing, not walking in that joy. Come to him and say, Lord, I want to experience real and genuine, lasting joy at your hand. At your right hand, forever, our pleasures forevermore. Some of you say, I know I'm not persevering. I want to give up. Lord, would you strengthen me? Would you give me that hope to keep on going through the darkness? Some of you say, I give no thought to the call to be a light to this world. Then I would come in weakness, come, come to God in weakness and say, God, I am totally incapable of the task, but would you use me as a vessel? Would you use me to speak hope to the people around me? That is a prayer, a dangerous prayer, because I believe he'll answer it. <laughs> but it's a wonderful prayer to start praying.